Aaron, thank you for pastorally leading us into our text for this morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing our study of the book of John, so if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me. We are in John chapter 4. We are looking at Jesus healing the official son. John chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 43. If you're there, say yay. If you're not, say wait. Okay. John chapter 4, verse 43 through the end of the chapter. After these two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. If you would pray with me that the Lord would bless our time in his word. God, you are God, and this is your inspired, authoritative, inerrant word. It has the power to change lives. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it. We ask that by your spirit, you would give me strength and clarity of speech. And that by your spirit, you would use your word to either bring us to faith for the first time or to grow our faith and to conform us more into the image of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So Mark is out of the country. He and his family are gone for a few weeks. And the one thing that he said to me when he left was, Matthew, while I'm gone, just don't burn the church down. <laughs> just do whatever, but just let there be a redemption parker still standing for me to come back to when I get to America. And so I was honest with him. I said, Mark, to be honest, like as soon as your plane takes off, I have this big elaborate coup <laughs> to take over. 
And by the time you get back, we are going to be speaking in tongues. We're going to be handling snakes. We're going to forget the Bible. We're just going to dance around the fire and, you know, wrap our lips around the hookah of the Holy Spirit and, you know, do whatever you want. So if you're a visitor, if this is your first time here, welcome, and I'm joking. Um, my name is Matthew Bowerman. I wear a few hats here at the church. I'm a church planting resident. We want to be a church that plants churches. And so eventually, hopefully one day, Redemption Parker will send my wife and I out to plant another church. Uh, I preach sometimes, handle some of the pastoral duties, just whatever hat you want to put on me, I'll wear it. Um, so, so welcome. Um, if you're a visitor, you did not walk into one of those like weird, strange churches that I was joking about. That said, there are some very strange things going on in our text this morning. Jesus does some things that maybe we wouldn't expect. He does strange things, and he does them in strange ways. And just as a tip in order to help us become better students of the Bible, a question you should always be asking yourself whenever you read a passage is, is there anything strange in here? Is there anything that catches my eye that maybe I wouldn't have done it that way, or that's not the response I expected, or maybe even look for things that seem to contradict each other and, and work them out. Look for those strange things. And, and this passage that we are looking at, Jesus healing the official son, has several strange things. Uh, but before we get to that passage, I think in order to understand Jesus healing the official son and everything that's going on there, we need to back up a few verses to verse 43. And in verse 43, we read that after two days, he departed for Galilee. And what an incredible two days it was. If you were here with us last week, we looked at uh, the beginning of John 4, where Jesus met with the woman at the well. And he was just really honest with her. He was really bold. And he said, yeah, you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man that you're sleeping with now isn't your husband either. And so through some very confronting and adept conversation and just through some gracious loving, Jesus transformed this deeply a uh, broken, sexually broken woman and transformed her into one of his own daughters. It, it was a miracle. And then this woman, who had been ashamed to show her face in public, then went into the town, put her face in front of everybody, and said, come see the man who told me everything that I ever did. And just at her testimony, some of the Samaritans believed but as we read the rest of the passage, some of the Samaritans didn't just believe her. They went to Jesus and started talking with him. And once they talked with him and heard his words, then they came to faith. And so it was like a revival was breaking out and in Samaria of all places. Now, just in that time, you need to know that Samaritans, they were viewed as the half-breeds, the, the inbreds. They were the lowest class of society. And so Jesus has had two wildly successful days in a place that you would not expect him to. 
And what does he do? He leaves. He leaves Samaria and goes to Galilee. Now, a little geography that will help us make sense of this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He spent some time in Capernaum. And all of those are pretty close together. That area is called Galilee. So Jesus is leaving the half-breeds, leaving Samaria, and he's going home. He's going to the place where he grew up. He knows these people, and they know him. And here's where we get to the very first strange thing in this passage. It's the first word of verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his hometown. Now, some of your translations will say for or because or therefore, and those are right. Some of them, I know the NIV has now. Now, the Greek word for for is gar. The Greek word for now is noon. The text actually says gar. It says for. The right word there is for. Okay, and so I think the reason the NIV chose now is because they noticed what was weird in this passage, and they tried to smooth it out. They tried to relieve some of that tension. But the word there is for. And just as an aside, we often think that the bigger the word in the Bible, the more important it is. The more theological implications and importance that it has, and so we focus on resurrection, righteousness, intercession, and we should, those all are important, but a lot of times big doctrines hang on little words. And this passage, this little three-letter word for this adverb changes how we are going to see this entire passage. So the word for is giving us the purpose of why Jesus is leaving Samaria and going to Galilee. The reason that he is going is because a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. What? Jesus, you are going, you are leaving wildly successful Samaria where revival is breaking out. And because you know that they will reject you and ignore you and not honor you, that, that's why you're going. Why are you doing that? Humanly speaking, it makes no sense if, you know, the disciples were, you know, campaign advisors for Jesus. They would say, like, stay in Samaria, strike while the iron's hot, like, build up your following, you're doing great, like, don't go to where you know you're going to be ignored. All right, but we have to remember that Jesus is on a mission. Back in chapter 3, we read that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus is on a mission from his father. He's not about fulfilling the expectations of man or doing what man would think that he should do. He is eager to be about his father's business, and he knows that his father has an ordained appointment for him, for the people of Galilee, and for one Galilean man 
in particular. So then we get to the second very strange thing in verse 45. Look at it with me. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Again, what? Jesus, you just said the reason you're going to Galilee is because you know that you will be ignored, you won't be worshipped, you won't be respected. And here we read that they welcomed him. Again, what, what is going on? What is John, what is Jesus trying to show us here? I think what he's trying to show us is that there is a kind of welcoming that does not honor Jesus. There is a kind of respect. There is even a kind of worship. There is a way to view Jesus that does not honor him for who he truly is. Now, throughout the book of John, Jesus is performing a lot of signs. And he says that the point of these signs is to point to himself as the Messiah. I can do all of these incredible miracles, see those miracles, but don't stop there. Keep going and see the one who is doing them. See that they attest to me that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he's already done one of these miracles. He did it in Cana. He did it at the wedding where he turned the water into wine. And the people loved it. They, they went absolutely nuts. And in, in that account, in chapter 2, we read that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. So their belief was based on their seeing the signs that Jesus was doing. Their belief wasn't in him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the, as the Word made flesh full of grace and truth. They were drawn to him as a miracle worker. They were drawn to the, the fireworks show, the man who could entertain them. And how does Jesus view those people who only want him for his signs? At the end of chapter 2, after the wedding at Canaan, Jesus tells us that on his part, he did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in man. He's not looking for admirers. He's not looking for people who are going to be entertained by him or for people who are only with him to get something from him. Jesus is on a mission from the Father. He is going to the cross, and he is looking for serious disciples who see him as he is and who are willing to pick up their own cross to follow him. And so in verse 45, when the Galileans welcomed him, notice that it was based on having seen all that he had done at the feast in Jerusalem. Contrast that with verse 44. Last week we saw that the Samaritans said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we now know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Romans 10.17 says that faith 
comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is the whole point. Okay, so there is a true welcoming and there is a false welcoming. There is a true faith and there is a false faith. And a false faith is based on signs and wondering what you can get from Jesus. And that's what these Galilean people were doing. They were hungry for his power. If I could put it a little irreverently, they were honestly saying to Jesus, like, dance for us, little miracle worker. Like, you're just a divine Pez dispenser. Do it again. You, you turn the water into wine, do it again, but this time do it bigger. Maybe make it bourbon. All right, th- th- they wanted something from Jesus. They weren't seeking him for who he really was, which begs the question, are you? Why are you seeking Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? Do you only turn to him when you're sick and you're hurting and you want healing? Do you only turn to him when money is tight and then you're happy to confess that he's the provider, but when money's in your bank account, it's all about you? Or do you only turn to him when you're going through marriage trouble? Like, if you pray less when things are going well, that's probably a sign that at least to some measure there's this false faith in you. That you only want things from Jesus instead of choosing to worship him simply because he is glorious and excellent and beautiful and deserving of your worship all of the time. So that is the setup. That's the context. That's the spiritual atmosphere that Jesus is walking in. He is coming out of wildly successful Samaria where they had true faith. They heard his word and believed him as the Messiah, and he is coming into Galilee, his own hometown. And they're the sign seekers, the, the, the wonder lovers, the power-hungry mongers, the false faithers. Pick up with me in verse 46. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this man was an official. Your translation might say nobleman or kingsman. Those are all good. And in that area, in that time, in Galilee, Galilee was ruled by a man named King Herod Antipas. And King Herod was an absolutely wicked man. He's the one who had John the Baptist executed. He divorced his first wife and took the wife of his own half-brother. He ruled with an iron fist. And so an official, a nobleman, a kingsman, is someone who worked for Herod. He was in Herod's entourage or company. So this would be like Hitler's right-hand man coming up to Jesus and asking Jesus to heal his son. Which, let's just take a step back here. And in the book of John, so far Jesus has talked to Nicodemus, 
who was a theologically educated, spiritually influential, very respected man. He talked to the highest of society. He talked to the woman at the well, the whore, the prostitute, the one who everybody was ashamed of, the bottom of society. And now he's talking to the right-hand man of a dictator, the people that everybody in the land would hate. So, So if you're looking for a third strange thing in this text, just know that Jesus keeps strange company. He is the friend of sinners. And his loving arm is not short. His grace knows no bounds. No one, no matter of status or past or association, is beyond the love of Jesus. So this official, he was wealthy. He worked for the king. He made a lot of money. So he could have afforded for the best physicians to come and to heal his son. But the fact that the son is still sick, we assumed that the physicians haven't worked. So he hears about this miracle-working, wonder-boy guru a few towns over, and he makes the trek. It's about a a 15- to 20-mile journey from Cana to Capernaum, kind of the same distance from here to Littleton. And he didn't have a car, and so he had to walk the whole way. So just to get into the mindset of this official, this man was desperate. He bought the best that money could buy, and it didn't work. He just walked 20 miles through a very hot desert. He's probably been crying tears because his son is at the point of death. And let me just say that being desperate, being brought to the end of your rope, having tried everything that this world has to offer, drinking deeply from everything that this world has to offer and discovering that it's all just a broken cistern that is going to leave you more thirsty than when you started. If you're at that point, then you are not far from the kingdom of God. So this official, he comes to Jesus desperately and he comes to him humbly. Let's see what he does. He says, come down and heal my son, for he's at the point of death. And then Jesus does that thing where he starts offending people again. A normal person, if they were in Jesus' situation, would have said, your son is sick, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, let me go help. Or, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, but I know one, I'll call them and they can go help. A normal person would have comforted or have tried to help. But in this man's moment of deepest need, Jesus challenged him. He said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Like Jesus would have failed every single pastoral counseling class that I took in seminary. Like this, this is just not what you say to a grieving father. But that, that, that's what he does. Jesus breaks out of every single box you can ever put him in. It's almost like the goal 
of every single gospel passage is to break down whatever previous notion that you had about him. And instead of comforting this man, Jesus challenges him. It's like he pushes his finger on a bullet hole. And he's asking, like, are you like all of these other Galileans who are just seeking signs and wonders? Are you full of false faith? Are you coming to me just because of what you can get from me? He challenges him. He hurts him. But like we heard last week, Jesus' questions are like a surgeon's scalpel. Yeah, they hurt, but they are meant to heal us. That's the goal of Jesus' question. And the official, you know, grief and desperation have a way of making you block out all the extra stuff and just focus on your one thing. He's walked a long way. He's out of money. He's tired. He's like, look, Jesus, I don't want to talk this theology. Like, just heal my boy. And Jesus says, go. Your son will live. Something happened in that moment. Jesus is on a mission, and this is the moment for which the Father had called him out of successful Samaria to go into the false believing Galileans, because this was a moment that had been ordained before the foundation of the world. And Jesus, who is the creator of all that is, looked into the eyes of one of his creatures and said, Go, your son will live. And then that man, that creature, looked back into the eyes of his creator. And when he heard the word of Jesus, when he, when he heard the eternal word of God made flesh speaking to him, he saw past the signs he saw past the wonders, and he saw the person. He saw Jesus for who he truly is. He saw him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Word made flesh, full of grace and truth. And he believed, and he left. Belief and faith play a big role in the book of John. That's why I think the song that we sang right before, Give Me Faith, was a very appropriate primer for this text. And so belief, faith, believe, some form of that word occurs almost a hundred times in the book of John. That is John's goal, is to strengthen our faith. And so we're going to see that word believe again in this passage, in verse 53. But we see that this man first believed in verse 50. Now he's in Galilee, the place of false faith, and so I, I want to be careful. I don't want to be too quick to say that he's not like all the people there. I want to know if that faith is genuine. And I think that it is. I think if we read this text closely and think about it, we will see that it was genuine. And I think the genuineness of his faith is evidenced by his willingness to go back alone. Each time that he had asked Jesus, he said, come down with me so that you can heal my boy. Come down so that you can touch him and heal him. But Jesus says, go, your son will live. 
And so I think the fact that he's willing to go back without what he expected shows that there is at least some measure of belief in this man. But then when he got home and he heard that his son was healed again, in verse 53, again we read that he believed. And it just seems like his faith grew. What started at mile zero was a small faith, and what ended at mile 20 was a bigger faith. What started as a spark ended as a flame. And as I think about it, that man's 20-mile walk from little faith to big faith is like a paradigm for every single Christian. There was a point where you didn't believe. There are some of you in this room who do not believe, who are not Christians. But for those of you who are, through some encounter with Jesus, He changed you. He brought you from death to life, out of darkness into life. The old has gone, the new has come. You're a Christian, a true, genuine one, but your faith is small. You're still a babe in the faith. So for those of you who are parents of young ones, like you know that there's a lot of pooping and throwing up. Like You're not a pretty Christian at this point. Small faith. But you walk and you become a toddler and you walk a little bit and you fall over. Or you say some of the right words, but some of it's just really, really bad. But then you continue to grow and to mature until eventually you are growing to become a mature believer capable of greater things because of the gift of greater faith. And so hopefully... All of us who are Christians who have been walking with the Lord for some time can say that our faith is stronger today than it was five years ago. All of us as Christians are somewhere on this spectrum with the official. But like the official, some of us in this room are also desperate. And we are at the end of our rope. We have tried everything and we have nothing left. For some of us, it's anxiety and depression. We're walking into a room makes us terrified and we can't even envision a tomorrow. For some of us, it's our marriage where our Communication is full of harsh and bitter words or just no words at all because that's easier. For some of us, it's we're single and we think that God is holding out on us or punishing us. For, for whatever reason, many of us in this room are going through a dark night of the soul. We're Christians. Our faith is there, but it's fading fast. And so to that person who feels like they can't hang on and that their faith is hanging by a string. There are three things in this text about Jesus that I want us to see. I want us to see three of his excellencies, his glories, his power. Just I want to see who he is in order to feed our faith, to make that spark grow into more 
of a flame, to move the needle a little bit. First truth about Jesus from this text is to see the power of Christ's words. Now, we know that Jesus' body is powerful. In Luke 8, there was a woman with the discharge of blood, and she was seeking a healing. And so she fought through the crowd, and she said, if I can only touch his garment, then I will be healed. And she did, and Jesus says, I, I, I felt, I perceived that this power has gone out of me. I, I think that's what this official was expecting. He's like, come down, come touch my boy. If your body touches his, he will be healed. I need you to come with me. And Jesus did not take a step. All he did is say, go, your son will live. And 15 miles away, there were chemical changes in that boy's body. Cause and effect chains are interrupted by the power of God. All right, remember when we first started studying John, John 1 Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, being Jesus, was God. So in creation, Jesus spoke everything into existence. Jesus spoke, and Jupiter appeared out of nothing. All of the galaxies that exist appeared out of nothing at His Word. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus currently upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So why did the sun come up this morning? It's not because God created it and set it on its path. The sun and the planets aren't on autopilot. The reason the sun came up this morning is because God actively, by the word of his power, is putting it where it currently is and is speaking it into existence. The reason the walls of this building are still standing is because Jesus is telling them to. The reason that your lungs are going to take another breath the reason that your heart is going to beat again is because thousands of times a day for every single person on the planet, Jesus is saying to those lungs and to, to those hearts, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, and it is a mere word from Jesus. That is all that it took to heal this man or this man's son. His words can create and sustain worlds, and his words can heal brokenness in this world, and his words can heal you too. Truth number two distance is no difficulty to Jesus. Again, the son was 15 miles away and he was healed. He could have been 15,000 miles away. He could have been on Pluto. And the word of God knows no bounds. 
I'm, I'm thinking Brad shared, I'm thinking of Jen Oshman right now, who she's in Europe and her dad is here and who is sick. I'll preach to Jen here and say that the word of God can cover the Atlantic Ocean. There are people in here who have family members who are sick, who are far away, and you feel guilty because you can't be there. The word of God knows no bounds. Time and space are irrelevant when the word of God is at stake. In the words of the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 15 miles, 15,000, the end of the known universe. Jesus is upholding it by the word of his power. Distance is no barrier to him healing. So take heart. Number three. The immediacy of the impact of the Word of God. John goes to considerable lengths to make sure that we notice the immediacy and the timing of the power, the healing power of the Word of God. So Jesus has this conversation. He says, go, your son will live. The man had little faith and he went. And when he got home, I think it was still little faith. If he had had big faith at that point, when the servant said, your son is healed, he would have said, I know. But he asked. He said, what, what time yesterday did he get healed? Maybe he got healed at 8 a.m. around breakfast, and it's just a coincidence. But his servant said he was healed at 1 o'clock. And the man knew that it was at 1 o'clock the day before that Jesus had said, go, your son will be healed, a.k.a. Jesus nailed it. The word of God is powerful, and it can heal people far away, and it can heal them immediately. In Isaiah 55, God says that of his own word, the words that go out of my mouth do not return to me empty but it will accomplish the purpose and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus spoke at 1 o'clock. His words went out at 1 o'clock, and his word did not return empty. They accomplished the purpose for which they were sent out. And at 1 o'clock, exactly, Jesus nailed it immediately. So brothers and sisters... Struggling brothers and sisters. This is our King. This is our Messiah. He is the Word of God. Full of grace and truth. His Word has all power. It knows no bounds. And it can overcome any obstacle. So as you're struggling this week, if you don't even know if you can make it to tomorrow, feed your faith on these truths. 
Ask the Spirit to lift your eyes beyond your circumstances so that you can see Jesus, not just for what he can do, but for who he is. And have the needle of your faith moved, even if it's just a little bit. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are upholding us by the word of your power. We are humbled. We are dependent. We are desperate for you. And there are many of us here who are hurting, who have broken relationships. There are many of us here and in our families that are also just physically broken and sick and need healing. God, I know that you have plans and purposes, that they are all for your glory and for our good. We trust that. We ask that not our wills, but your wills be done. But Lord, we ask that you would heal us. Speak to us. Cause chemical, physical changes in us. We want to tangibly see the power of your word at work in our lives. Feed our faith. Hold us fast. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.